let those words sink in. That we just sang about God, you give life. You give love. You bring light in the darkness. You give hope. You restore. We just lifted our voices together to say, great are you, Lord. Great are you, Lord. That hope, that restoration is exactly what we're longing for by the time we come to Amos chapter 9. Today we're actually finishing the book of Amos. And if you've been with us on this journey, you know that almost more than any other book in the Bible, this is the one that can feel like it's already too late. And yet we've been tracking through the series, through the book, through the pages, these hints of repentance, these hints of God's mercy, his heart, his desire for them. And so in a lot of ways, Amos chapter 9 will act like a summary of the whole book for us. That it starts with a very strong warning. But the last words of this book, the last words that God would speak to us through Amos, have, I, I think, a shocking gospel-centered message. In fact, there's something shocking, I think, we'll see when we get there what you think, and how it relates directly to us sitting here today. So let's jump right in to Amos chapter 9. Look with me at verse 1. This is where the warning begins. Amos writes, I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake, and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away, and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. See, the picture God is giving that you can't run. That when the moment finally comes, when the, the rejection is so complete and God says, I have to deal with evil because he's good, because he's righteous, because he's holy, he's essentially saying there's no escape. You can't run from it. There's no one who will be able to say, well, hopefully he won't find me. Hopefully he won't notice me. In fact, it says in the next verses, they dug, though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down, no matter how high, no matter how low. Verse 3, and though they hide themselves on top of Carmel, that's a mountain, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. Whoa. You're glad you came this morning, aren't you? And listen, I mean, the, the message is clear. There's really no sugarcoating this, right? That, that God is telling them, even, even if you dig into hell to try to hide from God, he sees you there. Even though we try to hide in the heights or the depths, we can't hide. Israel could not hide from the judgment that was coming. And I think that's Amos' warning to us, okay? Don't run. Don't hide. Whatever little piece of us thinks that running or hiding might benefit us, might work out, maybe no one will notice, maybe God won't find me, don't run, don't hide, it doesn't work. And guys, we've been hiding since the beginning. I mean, this is what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? The first sin that enters into our world and things fall apart. What do they do? They hide. You can't hide from God. And in fact, you don't have to. 
You see, part of the reason that we hide, it's really pretty straightforward. Either we don't want to obey God, so we run and hide. We feel guilty because we did something wrong. Or we feel ashamed that people are going to find out we did something wrong. Well, guess what? Even if I don't know you, all three of those describe you at probably multiple points in your life. Disobeying God, and I know it. Hiding from him because I feel guilty about it. Ashamed if anybody else found out. That's what we've been doing since the beginning of time. But what's amazing to me is these words, the heights of heaven, the depths of hell, the mountaintop, the depths of the sea, it's almost the exact same language that David uses in the Psalms to say, thank God that his presence is everywhere with me. That whether I feel scared, whether I feel guilty, whether life is good or whether life is hard, whether I went down to the depths or up to the heights, you are there with me. And so in one sense, what he's trying to show us is that this is who God is. This is the very nature and character of God. That it could be fearful if I'm trying to run and hide. But what David found was it was mercy, grace, compassion. That wherever he was when he needed forgiveness, God was there. Wherever he was when he needed strength, God was there. In fact, I think that's really why in this last chapter, the warning is so strong, but so built around who God is, his omnipresence, his omniscience. In fact, the next couple of verses go into this very same kind of thing. God is going to demonstrate his power, his authority, his holiness. Look at what it says in verse 5. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts. And all who dwell there mourn. And it shall swell like the river and subside like the river of Egypt. He who builds his layers in the sky and has founded his strata in the earth. Who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. You want to know who that is? The Lord is his name. See, what he's telling them is, if you think you're going to use planet earth to hide... (laughs) I made planet earth, he says. You know, I mean, and, and in some ways, this could describe destruction. right? He makes the earth melt. Another view of this is that he's actually describing different factors of the power of creation that he controls. That he touches a mountaintop and it explodes with fire. That's, that's a volcano. right? That he has built the layers of our atmosphere and the layers of our planet. And I love this last one. Who calls for the waters of the sea... And pours them out on the face of the earth. Now, to you this is probably really straightforward. And I know that the Bible doesn't always present itself as a science book. But when you see this kind of stuff, you can't miss this. Because what Amos just described is what we would call the water cycle. That all of us have known since like second grade when they show you a picture like this, right? Water evaporates from the ocean, it condenses in the air, it rains back down onto the planet, and then the rivers run it back out to the sea, and the whole thing goes again in a cycle. Remember that? Remember passing that quiz? (laughs) And then we just ignore it because that's just how the world works, right? Well, here's what I love about this. Literally, not that long ago, since, since about the time of Homer, okay, so a few hundred years B.C., the leading let's say scientists of the world, still thought that the land masses floated on top of the ocean. And they couldn't really understand how it was that rivers are constantly flowing into the ocean, and yet the ocean never fills up. Well, 
Maybe that's because we're floating on top, so it just lifts us higher as it fills. That, that was kind of the, 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 the theory, the hypothesis. But, but check this out from the Bible, even hundreds of years before that. And this isn't one of those places where you sort of have to read between the lines. I'm going to read to you from Ecclesiastes 1.7, written by Solomon, often called the wisest man who ever lived. I'm going to read to you from Job 36, 27 and 28, and then back to Ecclesiastes for verse 11.3. Okay? This is how the Bible describes it. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. For he draws up drops of water, which distill as rain from the mist, which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. (laughs) Hundreds of years before Homer still thought we were floating on the sea. Step by step, the water cycle all the way through. All these little words you can't read on here, you could replace them with those references from Ecclesiastes and Job and perfectly explain this. Now here's why I think God is telling them that. Okay, I, I, I did a little homework on this. This is... So if you like science class and you like math class, these next couple minutes is just free of information. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry, you know, because these next couple minutes are just free information. Every single year, okay, 5.1 times 10 to the 14th power cubic meters of rain fall on the face of the earth. Now that's probably hard to picture. I don't deal with cubic meters very often. So to give a little bit of perspective, the Amazon River empties 220,000 cubic meters of water into the ocean every second. Just the Amazon. Forget all the other rivers. Forget the rain that's happening over the ocean. Just the Amazon empties 220,000 cubic meters of water into the ocean every second. It just happened. It just happened again. Tracking with me? Only, I still don't really know what that means, so I want to show you this, because that would be like about 55 million gallons of water every second. So here's one gallon, okay? That's, that's not that hard to picture. Picture 55 million of those every second. But that's just the Amazon, right? Now you have to multiply that by 73. So 55 million of these times 73 is how much rain falls every second. Of the year. That means that's how much water has to evaporate from the ocean, move across the sky to somewhere else, condense, fall as rain, wash back out to the ocean, and do it all over again every single second. It just happened. It just happened again. It just happened again. And Amos says, the Lord calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. So here's the question for us. <clears throat> Can you do that? I can't. God can. This is the God that is standing before Israel. This is the God who is telling them, when you see my power, when you see my glory, don't run from me. You can't. Run to me, he would say. That the same God who has the power to call the waters from the sea and pour them out on the earth is also calling his people back to himself. Has plans to give them hope 
and restoration. Look at what he says in verse 7. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel, says the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Ker? He's painting a picture for them of the entire planet. And there begins to be a hint here that his message, what he's about to say as the grand finale of Amos, is not just for Israel. So hold that thought, because even as he describes these kingdoms of the earth, in verse 8 he says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom. Ouch. I mean, you remember back to the first chapters of this book. All of chapter 1 was about those other kingdoms. All the judgment they deserved for their wickedness that would have Israel saying, Yeah, go God, you know, deal with them. I knew they were idiots. And then chapter 2 he says, Now let's talk about you. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine have been all about Israel and how he needs to deal with them. And now as he reaches his grand conclusion, he calls even those nations back in. I mean, we, we left them to their judgment back in chapter 1, and yet he hints at them again here. He says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, referring to Israel, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet... I just feel like I've been waiting the whole book for this. Yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. And a piece of me, after eight and like a half chapters, is like, why not? I mean, they had their chance, God. Like, I remember back in chapter four, and you still wouldn't come back, and you still wouldn't come back, and you still wouldn't come back. Yet he says, I will not completely destroy them. You see, God has a plan that he's working on. He says, surely I will command and will sift the house of Israel, among all nations. As grain is sifted in a sieve, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. Now, this is a picture that would be extremely familiar to Amos as a farmer. It it can be a little foreign for us, but you actually see this picture come back in the New Testament as well. The idea of sifting grain is used by John the Baptist to describe the difference between people who will be saved by the Messiah... And people who will be blown away like chaff and burned in the fire. It's a heavy image. It's actually used by Jesus himself. But the picture that God is giving through Amos, he says not a single grain will fall when it is sifted. You see, the picture of sifting in those days would be break up the chaff. You you have to kind of torment the wheat. This is rice, I know. But you have to torment the wheat, torment the seed to get the chaff to break away. Then the chaff blows away, you use it for fuel or whatever else, but you're left with the beautiful seed. With a a chance at new life. With something life-giving. And so the picture that Amos paints for us is that there are going to be people who respond to God's message. That God is not going to accidentally burn up those who respond to him. That God is careful in his sifting and not a single seed, not a single grain will fall to the ground. Now I'm not as talented as this as Amos probably was and there are definitely some seeds on the ground up here. But that's why you don't want to trust me for this, right? You want to trust God for this. You see, and he says in the next verse, there's there's a very stark contrast, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. 
So, so just when you started to get those sweet words, yet I will not completely destroy. Oh, thank goodness, maybe I could fit in there. Yet I will not let a single seed fall to the ground. Oh, thank goodness, maybe that can be me. Then he says, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. Wait a minute, all the sinners? Isn't every, doesn't the Bible say everybody's a sinner? Well, let him finish. Because notice, if, if all he said was, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, then that's everybody. That's you. That's me. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us has come up short of his standard. But what he actually says is, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. You see, the picture here is it's the person who thinks they can run, who thinks they can hide, the person who thinks... God isn't really going to judge me for this. God doesn't really care about that kind of thing. It's 2021, and I don't think that's what God is all about. Guys, you hear this all the time in our culture. And if I'm honest, I've definitely heard it in my own mind. You see, in our day and age, we have kind of multiple layers of how we approach God. On one hand, you have the atheist who just says, I don't believe that he's real. You have the agnostic who says, I'm not sure we can really know whether he is or not. But there's another whole layer of people who are willing to say, well, I mean, I do think God is real. And and what we like about him is that God is love, right? Somebody told me that. And I can't believe that a loving God would send people to hell. If God was really love, he would let me do what I want. It's essentially what we mean by that. That if God was really love, he wouldn't get mad at me for this, he wouldn't correct me about that, and and he wouldn't be such a jerk about these things because this is who I am and this is what I want to do and whatever else. We, We basically say, if God was love, he would leave me alone. Now put that in the context of parenting your own kids. Would you ever say that? Like how ridiculous does that immediately sound? Like if I really loved my kids, I would let them do whatever they want. You, you try it if you want. I'm not going there. You, you try it. You let me know how it goes. Right? If I really loved my kids, I would let them do whatever they want. I would let them say whatever they want. And I wouldn't correct them because I, I love them. I'll just, you know, whatever. However poorly it goes, we'll just say, hey, you know, I love you. That's a really shallow picture of who God is. You see, God is going to tell us that he loves us enough That he is good enough, he is holy enough, he is righteous enough, that he is going to deal with what is broken that hurts us, that hurts people around us, and perhaps most importantly, hurts our relationship with him. And that's really what Amos has been driving people back to all the way through this book, is that ultimately what God is calling them to is, is like, yes, there are some behavior changes that are needed, but if they try to change the behavior and they still don't worship God, they're going nowhere fast. You notice, every time he brings up an issue, like how they've made comfort their idol, you know, how they've hurt the poor, how you know, sexuality or worship or whatever it is has gone completely sideways, then when he presents the solution, it's seek God. Get into his word. Like, you know, we saw last week, feast on his word before the famine comes. The solution is always to go back to God himself. The one to whom we just sang, great are you, Lord. You see, the idea here is that it's those who don't trust him. Those who reject that, that ultimately face the punishment that's coming. But that the message is, you can't run from God, but if you run to God, God will keep you from falling. 
You cannot do that yourself. You have to trust the Lord to keep you from falling. I heard this amazing quote from Spurgeon on this point because the reality is even if you are the seed, if you are the wheat, if you are the grain, if you have trusted Christ as your forgiver, you're still in the sieve. You're still being tossed around. And and Spurgeon wrote, "I, I think I see you, poor believer, tossed about like that wheat, up and down, right and left, in the sieve and in the air, never resting. And perhaps it's suggested to you that God is very angry with you. No, the farmer is not angry with his wheat when he casts it up and down in the sieve. And neither is God angry with you. And this you shall see one day when the light shall show that love ruled even in all of your griefs. Guys, the Lord who calls for the waters of the earth and pours them out, he is the God who can keep you from falling. That's, that's easy for him. And he loves you far more than the water and the earth and the water cycle. You can trust the Lord to keep you from falling. You know, when I was first kind of spending some time out here at Horizon, before I even came on staff, and just started to get to know a few people, and and there's a guy who attends here named Duke, that uh, if you've ever met Duke, I mean, to me, strikes me as like, this this is the man's man, you know, and he's got the big, broad shoulders and everything, and I'm like, I want to be like Duke. (laughs) I mean, come on, his name's Duke. Like, how awesome is that? And I remember, as I was getting to know him, he's he's just such a sweet guy, and one of the coolest moments was we were, we were right out here at the baptismal one day for Duke's baptism. And some of his adult children were there and his wife was there. And I remember as he was standing in the water, I don't remember who baptized him, but, but somebody standing in the water asked him, Duke, is there like one word about God that you would say defines why you're standing in the water of baptism today? And he said, Forgiveness. And I felt like, man, right in that moment, like my heart was bonded to Duke. Because that's it. Right? I don't stand in the waters of baptism because I'm finally good enough or because I finally fixed myself or whatever else it is. In fact, if, if you don't know this, the picture of baptism is that when you go under the water, it's an image of being buried with Christ in his death. And when you come out, it's being risen with Christ in his eternal life. And then all over the New Testament, when you see this, it's like they believe and five minutes later they're baptized. Because what, what are we waiting for? Yes, I believe that I died to my sin and Christ has given me eternal life. And that's what Duke was celebrating. And when he gave that word, I, I knew that's a man who trusts God to keep him from falling. Not himself, not his good deeds, not his ability to prove himself to anybody, not even to himself, but to God. And so maybe as you hear that, you're thinking, but what if I've already fallen What if I feel like I already messed up? What if I'm messing up right now? Does Amos still have a word for me? Well, well, listen to what he says next in verses 11 and 12. God says, On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Now, there's going to be an extremely specific fulfillment of this. But first, I want you to catch the character and the action of God. If you think you have already fallen, 
Can I comfort you to tell you that we all have? But look at this. God is the one who raises up that which has fallen down. Like, that's who he is. That's what he does. God is the one who repairs damage. And if you think that your life is in ruins, God is the one who rebuilds ruins. Guys, these are the kinds of things, I don't know about you, I need these words. And there are times in my life where it feels almost impossible to describe just how good God is. There are times in my life where it feels like I'm so desperate and I wish things like this were in here and I wish that they were true and then I don't have to wish because I read Amos 9 and I find that we serve a God who raises up what has fallen, repairs what is damaged, raises up ruins and rebuilds it even better than it was before. And I got to tell you, as I read that this week, as I was preparing to share this with you, the thing that immediately jumped to my heart that was like, I just got to share this with people. Because you may sit here and you think, yeah, but Drew, you don't know what I'm going through. If you're like me, maybe you sit here and you think, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. Well, hey, the good news is you can't run and hide from God. He, he knows what you've done. He knows what you're doing. He knows where you've been. He knows what hurts. And he's still speaking this to you. And I know that every person in here has their own story. And I do too. And if I can just level with you guys... The most painful part of my life, I caused. You know, I became a Christ follower when I was six years old. I was baptized when I was 12. And I remember thinking, I know that I meant that. I know what I believed, and I know that Christ saved me. But if you've heard me talk about my life at all, I'll I'll tell you, there's a lot of life and a lot of temptation that you have not seen when you were six. And it's been a journey for me. And over the course of my life, I've had issues with lust. I've had issues with anger. I've had issues with money. And I carried all of those things into my marriage with my wife, Melissa. And I think I spent too long running and hiding. And it's probably, probably a combination of all three of those things. Sometimes you're just trying to get away with something. Sometimes you're too ashamed to figure it out. And I know I kept telling myself, I got to fix this. I got to fix this. I'll fix this. I got to fix this. Guys, we don't fix it. I couldn't fix it. Until one day, I think, I don't know if I was hearing a message like Amos, but one day God brought me to a point of repentance where it was no longer just kind of like feeling bad about stuff. It was like really finally releasing that to God and say, you know what? I don't care about shame anymore. I don't care about those things. God, I want to give this to you because I believe that Jesus brings victory. I've been hearing this song on the radio all week this week, I think because God's probably trying to remind me that there is power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. And guys, that is true. Or I would not be sitting here today. And what was incredible to me is that in that season of life, with my wife at my side, I will tell you all the time that the absolute best tip I ever give anybody for marriage is if you submit to Christ and they submit to Christ, he's not going to tell you different things. He will bring you back together. He will heal. He will restore. And I've never seen anything so Christ-like as Melissa when she forgave me when I felt unforgivable. When she loved me, when I wondered if she still would. And guys, I got to tell you, it's so much more than just kind of like surviving that dark time. And as I look around this room, I know some of your stories. I know some of them are very similar to my own. I, I know some of them are a diagnosis. 
a relational challenge, whatever it is. Remember, we sang God brings light into darkness. That it's so much more than just trying to like survive life. God makes us flourish. God makes things better than they ever were before. And so Melissa and I are one of those stories where you probably wouldn't even guess what may be in our history. You probably wouldn't even guess the places we need to heal unless we tell this story so you know how good God is who raises up what has fallen. That when I thought I had done damage, God repairs damage. That when we feared it could be in ruins, God repairs ruins. And he bears fruit. That we can trust the Lord to bear fruit. And so we love our marriage more than ever before. We have more fun than ever before. And what I, I look back and say, I wish those things never happened, of course. But God doesn't ask us to look back. He asks us to trust him. And as we move forward, God does good work. And so my heart, like, like when I see Christ in my wife, and, and she, would, she told me this when I walked her through this, she says, make sure they know I'm not perfect either. So now you know. <laughs> my wife is also a sinner saved by grace. So I've done my part. What I love about it is just a couple weeks ago, um, she took me out to dinner to celebrate the day that I asked her to marry me. And she said yes. Like, she's still, cel- she's still glad. She still thinks that was a good decision. And this week we get to celebrate 15 years of marriage. And guys, just last night I was at a, a renewal celebration for a couple here from Horizon. Celebrating 35 years of marriage even after all the challenges that they'd been through. And I loved what the groom, I think we still call him that, 35 years in, (laughs) said to all of his friends and family that had been gathered, you don't get there without God's grace. But if you trust the Lord to bear fruit, no matter what is in your past, no matter what the challenge has been, he raises up, he rebuilds, he restores, and he bears fruit. Look at how he says this in verse 13. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. You see the picture there? He's saying that life is going to be so abundant in the presence of God that the person who is planting, the guy who's picking what he just planted, it's growing so fast, so bountiful, so much fruit. The person who picks is catching up to the person who plants. Right? He doesn't have to wait three months, six months, five weeks, anything. He's catching up. He's over to keep planting, man. God's bearing fruit back here. Okay, we'll keep planting. And then it says in verse 14, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. He's going to break their chains. He's giving them hope and restoration. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up. From the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. You notice how he says, they shall plant, and I shall plant. Now hold that thought for just a second. Because I told you that verses 11 and 12 had one very specific fulfillment. And this is where all of Amos comes together. I got to tell you, this this may be one of those things that like only I'm going to get this excited, but I hope you get excited on this with me. Because if you look at verses 11 and 12, go ahead and pull those back up there. I want you to see these as I read something to you. All right, so this is the part. He's going to raise the tabernacle of David. He's going to repair the damage. The Gentiles are going to be called by his name. All right, the picture here is that 
the way that God is dealing with Israel, the, the tabernacle of David is the house of David. The house of David means that the king comes from David. The king comes from David means the Messiah comes from David. And Israel has been rejecting the Davidic kingdom for centuries. So part of what God's saying is, you can't stop my plan. No matter how far south things have gone in the kingdom, God is still going to bring his Messiah. No one is going to stop him from what he is planning to do. So part of bringing them into captivity is so he can rebuild the kingdom that leads to the Messiah. So check this out. All the way over in the book of Acts, I'm going to take us to Acts chapter 15. When you get to Acts 15, the church is fighting over whether Gentiles, the nations, people who are not Jewish, can even be Christians. Because we have a Jewish Messiah. So, well, at the very least, they would have to become Jewish first, right? And do all the Jewish stuff and follow our Jewish laws. And there, there's a huge debate. I mean, it's, it's ugly. And so they gather at Jerusalem for this big council where they have all the leaders of the church to decide, what do we do? And the leader of the church in Jerusalem is James. And so James has all of these essentially Jewish believers that have gathered together. He's hearing reports from Peter and Paul that there are Gentiles across the world coming to Christ. So he racks his brain and he searches his Bible. He says, I don't want this to be man's wisdom. I want this to be God's. So look at Amos 9, 11 and 12. I'm going to read you up into how James responds in Acts 15. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Guys, when the leader of the early church stood before the believers in the name of Jesus Christ and racked his brain and searched his Bible to figure out how can it be that Jesus can save someone who is not Jewish, he found the answer in Amos chapter 9. Guys, everything we've been through in the last nine weeks, it's all about Jesus. You do not raise up your life. You do not repair your damage. You do not rebuild your ruins. But Jesus does. Jesus is the Messiah that because of him, we can be called by his name. Think about that. Christian. We get so used to hearing it, and in so many ways we've lost track of what it means, but when you say you are a Christian... When you call yourself a Christ follower, you are being called by the name of God himself. The God who says, I plant, and they will no longer be pulled up. So can I encourage you today 
Maybe you want to plant a seed of restoration. And I love the way he ends this book because God constantly talks this way. Who does the planting? Well, Amos 9 says God does. Who does the planting? Well, Amos 9 says I do. Well, so which is it? That's right. You see, God asks us to join into what he is doing. So when you think of the seed that is planted of restoration, as you listen, as you think, as your heart is connected to him this morning, you know, maybe you just want to plant a seed of restoration in your marriage. I know while Melissa and I were going through that, it felt like we were probably the only ones. And can I tell you, like, it's almost everyone. I'll stop short of saying it's everyone. But every marriage has challenges. Every guy faces these kinds of temptations. Every woman does too. You know, maybe today is a day that you want to plant a seed that says, you know, maybe it would be good to go talk to somebody about how we communicate. I gotta tell you, one of the best things we ever did was go find Christian counseling. Like, I, I poo-pooed that for years. I was like, talk, talk about an insult. If my wife says, I think we should see a counselor, like, is there anything more demeaning than that? No, I'm not gonna do that. I don't have any problems. <laughs> Guys, I know, it's like built into us. But man, if you find a Christ-centered counselor that you trust, I love it. It's some of the most fun that we ever had. They have tips that you just couldn't even imagine. And when it's coming straight from Scripture, like, it will change your life. It's amazing. You know, maybe it's just a, a small seed of saying, hey, I, I know that arguments happen sometimes. Next time, I want to apologize first. Guess what? You're going to need God to plant that seed because that's hard. You know, maybe the seed that you want to plant is baptism. You're like Duke getting to celebrate in the water that day because we have more baptisms coming up. And can I just tell you, if you call yourself by his name, Christian, Christ follower, that's all it takes. There's nothing holding you back. And too often we think, I've got to rebuild myself a little bit more before I'm really ready for like the water. I mean, that seems pretty serious. Well, it is serious, but it's not that serious. <laughs> it's a celebration that I believe that he is the one who rebuilds and restores and redeems and raises up. And you know, maybe that's the seed you want to plant today. To ask God to plant a seed of salvation. Because every other instruction in here, you know, you, you want to plant a seed of helping the poor like you've been giving to Israel. You, you want to come to City Gospel tonight. Maybe that's a seed that you plant. But all of it falls flat unless the first seed is salvation in Jesus Christ. So we pray that way together right now. And maybe that's a prayer that you just want to say to him. Jesus, today, plant the seed of restoration in me. I trust you as my forgiver who raises me up, who rebuilds me, who repairs me, and who replants me. Jesus, we thank you that you are the Lord who does all these things. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Guys, I have loved Amos, and I hope you have too. And next week, we're starting a new series. So this is, this is like, tell your friends, if you want to get ahead, go read Hebrews chapter 1. See just how amazing Jesus is. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for coming. <laughs>